0: All right, good morning, good morning. It's good to see each of you that are here in the building. And for those of you that are worshiping with us online, welcome to you as well. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I am uh, the, the senior pastor and one of the elders here, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. I would encourage you, just like Zach shared earlier, that if you are a guest Uh, Or if you've never had a chance to kind of drop your name off for us so that we can be sending you information about the church, we'd love that opportunity to do so. There are some connection cards there in the chairs in front of you, and we don't say it every week, but basically there is an offering box on the wall on the way out this room that you can drop uh, your offering, you can drop the connection card, you can drop prayer, uh, prayer requests and things like that. Uh, we are in an ongoing series throughout this entire calendar year where we're walking through the New Testament together as a church family. We, we've called it Foundations New Testament. And we last week started a new, uh, a new series uh, specifically on the Gospel of Mark, and we have called it Servant King because we see throughout the Gospel account or the Gospel telling of Mark that Jesus is identified not only as the king because he is but also that he is a servant. And we're finding out that as followers of Jesus that we're called to serve others and that we're to serve others for the sake of the king or for the sake of the kingdom. And so this morning you may have noticed on the back of your worship guide if you picked one up on your way in there's some uh, a place to take notes on the back side and you may have seen that the sermon title is who is the greatest? So we're gonna try to answer that question this morning. I know what some of y'all are thinking. Alan, we've already got one down. We know who the greatest football team of all time is, and that's the Dallas Cowboys. But we're gonna move beyond football, and we're gonna actually talk for just a split second about boxing, because if you are a boxing fan or keep up with boxing at all, you know that someone has already laid claim on the title of the greatest have you seen this quote from one by the name of Muhammad Ali he said I am the greatest I said that even before I knew I was you could say that Muhammad Ali had a little bit of confidence uh, about him and maybe even you could say a little bit of arrogance about him The interesting thing is, we could look at that quote and say, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that he would say something like that. But the reality is, did you know that the disciples of Jesus, the very dudes that were hanging out with Jesus in close proximity, had conversations very much like Muhammad Ali? If you don't believe me, you can turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. It's there in the New Testament, Matthew, and then. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you and you need a Bible either to use now or to take home with you, we've got some Bibles out in the entryways and you're more than welcome to grab one and use those. But in the Gospel of Mark, we see that the conversation takes place where they are trying to decide who is the greatest of all the disciples. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And as you do that, the reality is this. In the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three all list conversations very much like this. The disciples were routinely discussing, debating, arguing about who among them was the greatest. So let's look at Mark's account. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. It says, And they came to Capernaum, which is a city... Uh, there in in Jerusalem in Israel it says and when he was talking about Jesus was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way but they the disciples kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest to kind of help us get the feel of of the geography. I wanted to put the map on the screen, and I, I realize the map is going to be a little bit smaller print, but at the top, you'll see Galilee. At the very top, I want you to see a city by the name of Caesarea Philippi, and, and by the way, Aaron, let's leave this uh, up for, for a bit, um, and I'll talk about Caesarea Philippi in a moment. At the top of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see a city by the name of Capernaum, which I've already mentioned, and then on the right-hand side, or the east side, you'll see the region known as the Decapolis, uh, which is the ten cities over there. Look at that, I got, I got laser pointers, thanks Will. All right, and so then Jerusalem is going to be down further south, uh, over there near the Dead Sea, there you go. So I want you to kind of see that, and let's leave that on the screen so you kind of see the the geography as I walk through kind of the... Context, and then I'll bring us up to chapter 9. If you were here last week, we looked at one of the earlier chapters of, of, of Mark, and, set, and in fact we looked at chapter 1, and we saw that Jesus began his ministry up there around Capernaum in the region of Galilee. And in fact, if you'll read Mark, you'll see chapters 1 through 7 is, is almost entirely exclusively in the area of, the Gal- of Galilee, and, and then Capernaum. Capernaum was kind of his hub, his city that he uses as his headquarters, and then he had some ministry in outerlying areas as well. And then when we transition to chapters 8 through 10, we see Jesus heading south from Galilee down into Jerusalem where he will end up being crucified. And so actually chapters 8 through 10 is is really kind of like three years into his ministry because we're now headed to his his death, burial, and his resurrection. And also in chapters 8 through 10, he he shares with them a lot about what discipleship is and what discipleship looks like. In chapter 8, Jesus and his guys are up near Caesarea Philippi at the top. Uh, They're kind of further north, and while they're in Caesarea Philippi, in chapter 8, Jesus asks them, Who do people say that I am? And Peter, kind of the guy that will say something first before anybody else, says, you're the Christ. That's the first recorded uh, confession of faith where someone got it, that Jesus was not just a good teacher or a miracle worker or a good guy or sent from God, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. And so Jesus uses that opportunity at the end of chapter 8 to then begin to tell them, you're right, Peter, and here's what you need to know about the Christ. Here's what you need to know about the king. He has come to die. He begins to tell about how they're headed to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, that he will be arrested, that he will be killed, that he will end up being resurrected. I want you to remember that he's just shared that information with them. And then they head down to, if you'll see uh, Nazareth I don't know where Nazareth is let me see. I know there it is. It's in that kind of bluish section uh, further south. Uh, around Nazareth is a place called Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is where the Mount of Transfiguration takes place. And Jesus, in chapter 9, we see that Jesus goes up on a mountain. He takes Peter and James and John. And while they are there, Jesus is transfigured and he is seen in all of his glory. And the disciples see him for who he is. And the disciples also see these prophets of old, Elijah and Moses, and they are all there. And then they hear a voice from heaven, and God says, this is my son, and I'm pleased with him. This is all important for you to see. Because they are coming off the hills of Peter understanding who Jesus is, Jesus teaching them that he is going to be killed and resurrected, then seeing him in all of his glory, and then look at chapter 9, the section right before I read, in verses 30 through 32, Jesus once again tells them that he's come to die. These disciples don't have a lot of uh, wisdom about when to argue about things. Things are getting serious. They're seeing Jesus for who he is, and even though Jesus is displaying himself for who he is, they are caught up in who they are and who they are jockeying to beat out of position and who wants to be the greatest. This is hardly a time for an argument, much less a debate about something so trivial and unnecessary as who is the greatest. Alright, so let's pick up the story. We're going to look specifically at the text I chose for today, verses 33 and following, and they're now back to Capernaum. They're headed south, headed towards Jerusalem, and it says that they end up in Capernaum. In chapter 1, we find out that Capernaum is where the apostle Peter is from. We find out that Peter has a house near the synagogue there. We find out that Peter's house is kind of their headquarters. And so in verse 33 of Mark chapter 9, when it says that they're in the house, more than likely they are at Peter's house. And they're just kind of calibrating and figuring out where to go as they head towards Jerusalem. And then Jesus asks them this question. Look at 33. What were you discussing on the way? Jesus didn't need to ask that question, right? Jesus knew the answer. Jesus knew what they were discussing. These disciples don't answer him. It says in verse 34, they kept silent. It's an uh uh-oh moment for the disciples. They're like, Peter, why'd you have to talk so loud? You know we weren't supposed to be talking loud, but you've got to be bold in all of this, and why did you let Jesus hear hear us? The reality is Jesus didn't have to hear him. Jesus knew what was going on. They also are silent because they are embarrassed they are they're like oh maybe that wasn't the best conversation to have but but they still had that conversation so they're surprised that jesus found out they're a bit embarrassed and so they kept silent because at this time when jesus is trying to get them to focus on who he is as the servant king, on who he is as the Messiah, on who he is as the Christ, on who he is as the one who would come and die and be buried and resurrect for their lives, they are discussing who they are and how they are the greatest. They're standing in the presence of the sovereign son of God and they're debating which one of them is the most important. The irony of it all. I know what you're thinking. Idiots. But how often do we go through life puffing ourselves up, trying to make ourselves great, trying to make other people small so that we can look better, How often do we go through life acting as if God, the sovereign being, the creator of all things, the master and the king, and we tell him we want to do things our way. All too often, we're very much like those disciples. So this morning, I want us to unpack how Jesus responds to them and how he responds to you and I. Jesus is going to answer the question. Jesus is going to answer the question that they are asking, and that question is, who is the greatest? So let's look at what happens. We'll pick up the story in verse 35. I'll read verses 35 and 30, through 37. The answer is in verse 35, and then 36 and 37 is an illustration that kind of demonstrates what he's saying in verse 35. It says, And Jesus sat down, and he called the twelve, that's the disciples, and here's what he said to them. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Parents, as you raise your kids, aren't you trying to capitalize on teachable moments where maybe something doesn't go exactly like it should? I know what you're thinking. My kids are perfect. I never have issues. No, the reality is we all have kids that need to be corrected quite often. And in those moments, we can either yell at them, scream at them, get mad at them, uh, dismiss them, avoid them, let them get by with it, or we can take advantage of a teachable moment. Here's Jesus with his disciples while they're discussing something that really they shouldn't be arguing about, and Jesus is trying to redirect them. So what does Jesus do? He uses this as a teachable moment. Verse 35, it says that he sat down. You're like, I know why he sat down, dude. They're walking everywhere. Did you not look at the map? They're going everywhere. They're going from here to there. Jesus is just plumb worn out. He's disgusted by his disciples. And he goes, I'm going to sit in the lazy boy and tell you how it goes. No, the reality is this Jesus sat down because he had the authority of a teacher, he was their rabbi. And the way that the rabbis would teach is they would sit and teach. So the idea that Jesus took the time, and Mark mentions that he sits down, means that he is about to share with them something they needed to hear that he had the authority to share as not just a rabbi, but the rabbi. Not just as a great teacher, but the great teacher. Not just as a man of God, but the son of God. And here's what he says. And I want us to let this resonate with us. It's a short little sentence, But it packs a punch if anyone would be first if anyone would be great if anyone would have significance in this life here's what he must do he or she must be last of all and servant of all so you'll see on your notes the very first point is an overarching point for the whole morning The answer to the question is, who is the greatest? The greatest is a faithful disciple. It says that true greatness on your notes, true greatness is found in being a disciple. Did you notice that Jesus didn't reprimand them? He didn't say, Y'all are a bunch of idiots. Why are you asking about who's the greatest? Greatest doesn't really matter. No, Jesus takes the moment to not just reprimand them for using the word greatest. Instead, he redefines what greatest means. What does the world say that the greatest means? The greatest means the most successful. The greatest means the one who wins. The greatest means the one who conquers. The greatest is the one with the strongest opinion. The greatest is the one with the loudest voice. The greatest is the one who really tells it like it is. There's all kinds of definitions of the greatest in the world, but Jesus says those definitions are not the correct definitions. If you want to be first, here's the two things you have to do. You have to be last of all and servant of all. This morning do you want your life to have significance do you want your life to be great then i encourage you to simply be a disciple here at our church we talk about this all the time be a disciple make disciples be the church of the glory of god When we use the phrase, be a disciple, we're not simply meaning get your head knowledge filled up with who Jesus is and know all of the biblical facts. Those things can be helpful, but that's not what the definition of a disciple is. A disciple is one who genuinely, truly follows Jesus. So Jesus, who is king, came as a servant, and if we want to be great Not like him, because he is so high that we won't ever achieve that. But if we want to be great in the kingdom or useful for the kingdom, then if we want to have a significant life, then we need to reflect who he is and model who he is. In other words, we need to be a genuine disciple. And as we are a genuine disciple, therein we find true greatness. You see, greatness is not about position. Greatness is not about power. Rather, greatness is about humility and service. He who wants to be first must be last of all humility. He who wants to be first must serve all. We need to be a servant. You see, greatness in the kingdom is about adopting Jesus' values and his perspective. So being a disciple is not just simply about what you believe. Rather, being a disciple is also about how you live out what you say you believe. Perhaps you've read the New Testament book by the name of James, and James says that we need to not just be hearers only, but we're to be doers of the word. So this morning, I challenge you to be a disciple, not simply by hearing a message and affirming that intellectually, but instead that you would live out what the word of God says, Look back at Mark chapter 9. Verses 34 and 35, whenever Jesus responds to them, and whenever he says, hey guys, y'all been arguing about who's the greatest, but I'm telling you, instead of focusing on that, focus on being last, focus on being a servant. You talk about a counter-cultural lifestyle. Jesus is calling us to a counter-cultural lifestyle. He'd already pointed it out. It's funny, I, I looked at the wrong verse. I said chapter 9, I meant chapter 8, those same verses, 34 and 35. As Jesus was talking the first time when he told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die for their sins, in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, he, he has other countercultural kind of instructions to them. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. He's calling us to counter cultural upside down kind of thinking, and that's what it means to be great in the kingdom, to serve others. The world says, make yourself great. Jesus says, make him great. He already is great, but proclaim his greatness and do so by serving him and serving others so we see that true greatness is found in being a disciple let's look at those two pieces that he shares in verse 35 the first one is there on your notes being a disciple requires overcoming your desire for position in our house we have a whole lot of jockey in for position right now and it's not among the humans in our house It's among the animals in our house. Uh, Before, two weeks ago, we had one dog. We had one cat. We decided to introduce a third creature into the picture, and instead of getting a brand-new puppy or a brand-new kitten, we got a bigger puppy, and it's a puppy that is 13 months old or so. And so two weeks ago, we we got a dog. So here are our two dogs. Uh, You'll see the one on the right is our boxer and her face used to be black as black, and now it is white as white can be. She is around almost 10 years old. She is in her elderly years, and she's none too happy about this young whippersnapper that has moved into our house. We have an old English bulldog, and there he is, and he is all puppy all day long, and he loves to play. She loves to grump, which he thinks is play, And so they kind of cross hairs a bit. And and they're jockeying for alpha position, right? And I'm pretty sure I know which one it is, and it's the one that's on the left. But that's not the biggest debacle in our house. Let me show you our other animal. There he is. Tigger didn't used to hang out at the ceiling until uh, the puppy came along. And now he's not too happy. In our lives we try to act big bad and tough in our lives we try to get in the position of the alpha to be the one that's in charge and yet Jesus says that for us to be first means we actually have to be last let's be honest does that even begin to make sense? Let him who wants to be first be last of all. Absolutely not. Like that is like, huh? Like those are polar opposites, right? Jesus says if you want to be first and be last, it does not make sense. But what Jesus is saying is that a person who is genuinely great, a person that's genuinely a disciple or a follower of Jesus is one who acknowledges that humility It's important. Think back, if you're familiar with the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, what's the first Beatitude that is shared? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Jesus says that whenever we acknowledge our need for him, then we are blessed. So that's part, that's the biggest part of Acknowledging that we need to be last is humility before a holy God. This humility needs to move beyond humility before a holy God and humility when dealing with other people in our lives. Realizing that the world does not revolve around us. All too often we are self-centered, self-focused, Jesus says, let's flip the script. Jesus illustrates the point by finding a child. We see that in verse 36. It says that he found a child. Perhaps this is even Peter's child. I, I don't know for sure. We know that Peter was married because it says that he had a mother-in-law back in chapter 1, But and they're at Peter's house, but they've picked up a child. Jesus picks up a child, And he holds the child up and he says to them, look at verse 37. Jesus holds up the child and he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What he did was almost unheard of. He elevated this child You see, back then in that culture, a child was seen as unimportant. A child was seen as less than. A child was seen as kind of being in the way at times. And Jesus is holding this child up and saying that this child is not insignificant. This child is not unimportant. This child is not less than. This child matters. Because you see, if you receive this child, he says, then you receive me. Verse 37 says, not only do you receive me, but you also receive him, the father who sent me. The word receive here means welcome. The word receive here means to accept. The word receive here means to treat as a loved guest. Jesus is really kind of messing with their heads right now. He says this child matters. And when you receive him, you receive me. So this idea of making ourselves last of all means that we must absolutely view absolutely no one as less than us. To receive A child or someone like a child means that we should receive those whom society views as less than. And when we receive them, then in essence, Jesus says we're receiving him. This account reminds me of a parable that Jesus told. You you can look at it with me if you'd like to. It's back in Matthew chapter 25. It's the parable of the goats and the sheep. Jesus tells a parable about what the last times will be like and, he, and he, it describes those who are followers of him and those who are not. And the way that you're able to identify who's a follower of him is one who actually lives out his teachings and has been changed by his word and the way they've been changed in this scenario is to receive those who are less than. I want you to hear these verses. Perhaps they're familiar to you. Matthew 25, verses 37 through 40, no, I didn't mean to read that many, 30, 37, there we go, 37 through 40, here's what it says, then the righteous, I'm picking it up in the middle of the parable, you may want to go back later and read the whole parable, but it says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry, when did we feed you or, or thirsty and, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, and here's his answer. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Guys, to be a disciple who truly follows Jesus means that we are having significance in our life. To be great means that we have to put ourselves last. To put ourselves last means that we don't see others as less than us, which means that we love any and everyone that God puts into our lives. And when we receive them, welcome them, love them, serve them, then we're doing that as if we are doing it to the Lord himself. Jesus modeled compassion for those who have less than standings in the world. Listen to what he does in Mark chapter 1. One of the first miracles that we find in Mark is found in verse chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. This is a leper came to Jesus, imploring Jesus and kneeling to him. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Don't rush past the fact that this verse says that Jesus reached out and touched this man. You see, this man was a leper. And the the religious law of the day said that lepers were not to be touched. In fact, did you know that when a leper, if he ever left the leper colony and headed towards town or he ran into somebody else that was not a leper, do you know what he was supposed to do? He was supposed to shout at the top of his lungs, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because he was unclean, no one should touch him. And here is Jesus the king who shows himself the servant and shows compassion on him and touches him and acknowledges that just because the man has leprosy does not make him less than. He showed compassion on him. So when Jesus said that to be great means that you make yourself last of all, Part of what he's saying is that means you receive children. Part of that, what he's saying is it means that you receive lepers. What about in our context? What about in our days? What are the groups of people that maybe are seen as less than that Jesus is calling us to love? It could be a person with AIDS, it could be a person who's mentally impaired, it could be the refugees. It could be a Muslim. It could be the person, and I'll let you define the category, but it could be a person who's in the worst category of sinner that you could ever think of or describe. And Jesus says... That true greatness is to see yourself as last of all and loving all people because he loves all people. And yet our pride and our desire for position makes it difficult for us to live that out. So Jesus says to be great, be a disciple. The first aspect of that is to make ourselves last of all. And now to pick up the second part. Let's look again at 35. He says, not only should we be last of all, but we should be servant of all. And so the final note on your outline says that being a disciple requires you to serve others. When Jesus says to be the servant of all, he means all. Without excuse, without exclusion, we should be willing to serve all people. Now let me give one small caveat that's an important one. I acknowledge that in your life you may have been impacted by someone, maybe even abused by someone. Maybe a crime was committed against you, and therefore it might be a little difficult for you to come in and serve that person. I'm, I'm not saying that we should make ourselves a doormat for people to trample over. Rather, what I am saying is that in general terms, we should not see anyone as less than us, and therefore we should be willing to serve all types Of people, even if there's a particular person that it might be difficult to serve because of past experiences. Instead of aspiring to greatness, we should aspire to be a servant. Jesus gave us a perfect example of how he is king and yet he is a servant. Do you know the story that John tells in his gospel? It's the night that Jesus is to be arrested the disciples and Jesus show up to the upper room and they're going to have the Passover meal together. Are you familiar with the story? They get in the room, they're ready to eat and celebrate and then they realize that there was no servant at the door. Their feet are nasty, they got toe jam going on, they need their feet cleaned. But nobody stooped to that level to clean feet until Jesus does. Listen to what Jesus does in John chapter 13. I'll read verses 14 and uh, 15 and 16, I guess. Jesus says he's washed their feet, okay? I'm leaving that part out. But earlier in the chapter, he washes the feet of the disciples. He takes up a basin of water and a towel, and he cleans their feet. And here's what he says. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus says that we are to live a life of radical servanthood. Back in Mark chapter 9. When Jesus uses the word servant, he uses the word diaconus, which is where we get our word deacon today. And that word servant in the Greek means to be one who executes the commands of another. It means to execute the commands of like a servant of a king. Guys, whenever Jesus says that to be great, we're to be a servant of all, means that we first and foremost realize that we are a servant or a slave to the Father, and that because we are his servant, he is calling us with orders to execute in order to serve those around us. So as we're serving others, we're actually serving God himself. It's as we serve others that the identity of Jesus becomes more and more a part of who we are and we reflect who he is. So the path to greatness in the kingdom demands that we live a life of servanthood. But in order for us to live a life of servanthood, we have to transition our attitude. Our attitude is, I deserve to be served. Our attitude is, it's been a long day at the office, so let me go home, prop up my feet, turn on the television, and have others come to my beck and call. When in reality, Jesus is saying, instead of aspiring to be served, how about we aspire to live to serve others? So... Jesus' disciples have this conversation. Who is the greatest? Jesus says, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me answer it for you. To be the greatest means that you're a disciple who places yourself last and you also serve others. This is not something that comes natural to us as humans. If it did, then they wouldn't have been arguing over who was the greatest. They would have been like fighting over who could serve the other one, but instead they're fighting over who's the greatest, and we fall trapped into that trap as well. So what I want to encourage you to do is ask the Lord to shift your way of thinking so that you no longer live a life aspiring to be served, but instead that you seek to live a life in order to serve others. And here are some ways. Maybe you want to jot these down or the ones that kind of speak to you. Here are some ways that you can serve others even starting today how can you be this a disciple who serves others here's one way look for ways to serve others and your own family on a daily basis when's the last time that you went to your wife or your husband when's the last time you went to your child when's the last time you went to your parent when's the last time you went to your sibling and you said to them How can I serve you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? Some of you have a very humble attitude and you perhaps do that on a regular basis, but for the vast majority of us, it's probably been a long time since we asked how we could serve someone in our own house. Here's a second way you can serve others. Strike up a conversation with your next-door neighbor and as you have conversations with them, needs will probably pop up and you can find ways to serve them. A couple of days ago, Ashley said she was going to go check the mail. She said, I'm going to be gone for a little bit because the guy on the end of our block is working in his, in his, in his yard. This gentleman has lost the use of his legs primarily, and so he sits down on the ground he's probably in his 70s he sits on the ground and he works in the flower bed in that spot and you remember that freeze that came through and killed all of our bushes that looked the exact same you know that bush he's out there trimming it back so Ashley said I'm going to offer to help him he may not take me up on it but I'm offered so she offered to help him and he's a great guy but he just didn't take her up on the help but what did they do they had a conversation. So that was a way of serving him, even though she didn't pull the shrub up and all of that. She was serving him by having a conversation and talking about life and getting to know his story. And she was able to share with me kind of their background of where they lived before they lived here. And there are lots of ways to strike up conversations with your neighbors and look for ways to serve them. Here's the third way you can serve. Sign up to serve on one of our ministry teams at church. Let me read a verse for you and I'll tell you about one of those things. Mark 9, 36, and he took a child, put him up in the midst of them and said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Can I tell you a great way to serve? You ready for it? Sign up to serve in preschool. Sign up to serve in children's. Sign up to serve in our youth. I will say this. You gotta be a member of the church you got to clear a background check you got to share with us that you're wanting to do this for real good reasons instead of something weird but you could potentially be a servant in one of those areas did you know that on any given sunday there are 70 to 75 kids out there that's right that's good news But the kids that are out there need adults out there that love Jesus and love kids and love to serve and they're living the life of what it means to be a great disciple. I can't think of very many things that have more potential for the kingdom than serving a child. There's other ways to serve too. I know Eric and the audio and video team would love more help. I know the check-in team, the check-in kids would love more help. I know those that are, are a part of the finance ministry would love more help. I know those who serve on personnel would love more help. The list goes on and on. Guys and gals, if you are in a position in life and you're a member of our church and you have any bit of a slim margin of time there are ways to serve god's calling you to serve we have the expectation that our church members would serve you can serve others by serving in our congregation here's the fourth area i'd encourage you to find a ministry organization in town that you can serve alongside of kind of cool there's lady in our church maybe you've heard of her before Joyce Tipton she put together this sewing team I think they've maybe come up with a name that has the word sewer in it no I mean sewer in it and she they're sewing things and they're praying for ministries and as they sew these things they give it to the ministry organizations as they partner with ministries that are already doing things in our community you don't have to create a ministry come alongside and support and serve with the ministry here in town I'm going to keep going. There's three more I want to share with you. Maybe you need to encourage your hope group to find an outlet of serving others. We want our hope groups to be a family where you come together and enjoy time together, but we shouldn't just be soaking it in. We should also be serving in our community. Maybe it's time that our hope groups find somewhere to serve. Here's another one. As you go through your daily life, begin to think of others' needs first instead of yours. It's funny this morning as I... Came out of my office, one of our guys that are greeting at the door today opened my door as I came out of my office and he said, hey, let me get the door for you. I read the worship guide and I know what the message is about and I want to serve you. I know on one hand he was kind of being cute, but the reality is this dude is a servant and he loves to serve people. He saw me walking out the door, he opened it and let me, let me out. In your everyday life, find ways to serve. But in the midst of it all, don't miss this one. Find ways to serve others by telling them the gospel. Because we can serve all day long. If we don't tell them the gospel, we haven't truly served them, have we? Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says this, that 100% of us that have ever lived nor or ever will live, that all of us are sinners all of us have placed ourselves on a kingly throne instead of the one true king that all of us have decided to do our own thing the bible says that we are like sheep and we've strayed and got our own way and done our own thing god says that because of our sin that death is the punishment Death is the punishment. Which means, ultimately, not just physical death, but an eternity separated from God. But thank God, that's not the end of the story. You see, our sin... Deserves death. Deserves our death. And not only does it deserve our death, it will bring our death unless we turn to God in repentance of our sins. I don't care how many times you've been to church. I don't care how many times you've written a a check to the church. I, I don't care how many prayers you've prayed. I don't care how many doors you've opened. I don't care how many Sunday school classes you've taught. If you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation, then the scripture says that you are headed to an eternity without Jesus. But the gospel says that hope is found in Jesus Christ. We don't need to put the map on the screen, but a moment ago I had the map and I was showing you how Jesus was kind of all over the place and I said he was headed to Jerusalem. Why was he going to Jerusalem? Because he came to die. Why did he come to die? Because death is required for the punishment of sin and that death is either going to be mine or it's going to be his. Jesus has paid that price, but unless I trust in him for salvation, that payment that he paid has no effect on my life whatsoever. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God in the flesh, never sinned, yet he died on the cross taking the weight of our sin on himself, bearing the wrath of God, the punishment of God, that in order for us to receive the forgiveness of our sins, all that we have to do is trust in his grace that he is who he says he is, that we are broken and we are sinners and we are hopeless and we are dead without him, but if we turn to him in a posture of repentance, saying, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I can't do this on my own, and trust in what he has done for us, our sins can be forgiven. Because you see, Jesus did not simply die and that's all she wrote. Rather, Jesus died for punishment for our sins and scripture says that three days later he was raised again overcoming sin and death and the grave and and the wrath of God in order that if we placed our faith and our trust in him, we might be forgiven. So this morning, do you want to be great? If you want to be great, start by humbling yourself before a sovereign holy God And trust in him and him alone for salvation. And then as you walk through this life, may you walk in a way of humility and servanthood, reflecting the servant king and sharing the gospel story with those around. So in just a moment, we'll... Sing, and as we do, you'll have a chance to respond. You can respond there at your seat. You can respond here at the altar. You can respond by putting it on your connection card or sending us an email, but would you trust in Jesus for salvation? And if you haven't yet been baptized, maybe you need to get baptized. We're having baptism in a couple of weeks on June 6th. Maybe you want to sign up to be a part of our baptism. Let me conclude with this. I think the biggest problem, or the biggest obstacle for us living this out in our lives is that we get confused about what Christianity is about. We think Christianity is about my salvation, my physical health, my power, my prestige, my, 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 when it's all about Jesus and about his fame. Christianity is about what he's doing and his people. It's about how he wants to use you to share the good news to others. But in order to do this, we must seek to be last. In order to do this, we must live as a servant. In order to do this, we must leave the greatness up to God instead of ourselves. And I encourage you to remember this upside-down nature of the kingdom, that the way up is actually down. The way to get is actually to give. The way to be first is actually to be last. The way to be great is to be served because this is the way of Jesus This is the way of greatness. And that is what it means to be the greatest. Let me pray for us.